It's a fact. The median earnings gap between African-Americans and whites after dramatic closing has re-emerged, has re-widened to reach levels not seen since the end of World War II. Kerwin Charles, the interim dean of Harris Public Policy, has spent his career trying to understand what causes inequality in the labor markets. But even he was shocked with the results from a recent paper. Writing alongside Patrick Baer of Duke University, Dean Charles found that the median African-American male holds the same position relative to the median white male as their grandfathers did. It's a result that calls into question the very premise of the long march towards equality. But it also makes you wonder, why haven't we seen this number before? Today on Radio Harris, Dean Charles breaks down not only what he found, but his innovative approach to understanding labor dynamics, one driven by the idea that there are some things economists haven't been accounting for. The difference in socioeconomic outcomes between African Americans and whites has been, for a generation at least, one of the most intensely studied issues in the social sciences. That is explained in part by the country's history. There's slavery, there's Jim Crow. In addition, when one casts one's eye upon the thing, whatever you look at, these differences are large. The differences have, over time, improved since, say, the end of Jim Crow. But they've never gone away. That They exist across outcomes. Has always attracted the attention of social scientists, so we are not rare in that regard. But as Pat and I talked, it became clear to us that there were some some recent changes, certain recent economic and sociological phenomena, which might have had an effect on measured differences between African Americans vis-a-vis labor market outcomes that the literature, in our view, had not yet grappled with. How recent are we talking? It became clear to us, this is before we started doing the work, that something with respect to incarceration policy had changed radically in the last 35 years. So I've written papers about growing incarceration rates and the racial difference in the same. Incarceration has the effect of causing people to be removed from the labor market. In addition, incarceration, or having ever been incarcerated, could produce a scarring effect because he carries, potentially, the stamp which says he was a former inmate, and that too might adversely affect his labor market outcomes. So the fact that that thing has gotten dramatically bigger since at least 1975, the fact that that thing we suspected and my other work had shown manifested itself so differentially by race, suggested that it would have an important influence or impact on measured racial differences. Incarceration was one thing, there's one other thing. And the other thing is that there has been in the last couple of decades just a dramatic change in the underlying structure of the economy, in earnings. In particular, the thing called generalized inequality, we knew has gotten a lot bigger. People have been documenting that leaving race aside, that people in the top have been pulling away from people at the bottom and middle, again, in a race-independent way. And we were curious about the effect of that, too, would have an effect on black-white earnings gaps because of the differential position of blacks and whites in the nation's earnings distribution. So those are two things that cause us to think, at a minimum, thinking about new ways to measure the gaps with respect to labor market outcomes was a fruitful thing to do. 
it might be useful for us to talk now about which outcome I mean. Because one of the things that struck us is that in thinking about differences in how two groups of people are doing the labor market, an important decision the scholar has to make is what outcome are you looking at? And so for us, we thought we could have done what labor economists usually do, which would be to say, look at wages. Economists like wages because wages are a measure of an agent's productivity under our canonical representation of the labor market. The problem with using wages to summarize the well-being of a group, however, is that if members of the group are not working, there is no measured wage for them. And so once we looked at the data, even superficially, it became clear to us that there were the problem of the zeros. The problem of the zeros. This observation was not unique to us. People had made it before. But we thought, let's take the zero seriously. And let's focus not on wages, which would not be measured for zeros, people not working. But let's use earnings, where if you're not working, your earnings are zero. And if you do work, your earnings would be your, your wage times the hours of work. And so the use of earnings means that one could include in one's characterization of economic differences between the groups, the entire sample. All black men and all white men, do you see? We would not ignore the non-workers, which we would do if we were using wages. Another, another question I might ask is, well, okay, what about earnings? There are two groups of people. We suspect these groups differ vis-a-vis -vis earnings, but I can summarize and represent earnings different ways. Here's an example. Let's take me and you. One way we could say that our earnings differ is you could say, Jake made $100 this year, Kerwin made 25 there's a level difference in earnings between Kerwin and Jacob 75. A different thing we might do is to say, take these two men, Kerwin and Jay, and reflect on where they are in the American earnings distribution. Line up Americans ranging from the richest person, who is the 100th percentile person, to the poorest person, who is the 1th percentile, and say, throw Kerwin and Jake into that distribution and say about Kerwin and Jake, how many percentile points differentiate them? So having done that, you might say, the guy earning 100 is the 35th percentile, you might say. And the guy earning 25 is the 11th percentile. So the percentile gap between Kerwin and Jake is 35 minus 11. Another way you could approach it is to say, you know, let me arrange black and white men within their particular racial group by the level of their income. One to 100 among whites, one to 100 among blacks. And I can do pairwise comparisons. I can compare, say, the 75th percentile black man to the 75th percentile white man, the median black man, to the median white, thus and so. And so we could do these comparisons throughout the earnings distribution. It is the combination of those three things, using earnings rather than wages, focusing on both level and rank, thinking carefully about percentile to percentile comparison, the combination of all those three that distinguishes the descriptive portion of our work. The facts that emerged were for us quite shocking in some ways. The median is a statement about what's happening to the black guy in the middle, 
and the white person at the middle. And so when we observe the median earnings gap at the middle, we observe that the earnings gap closed between World War II and around 1980. And it closed by a dramatic amount. Yeah? It closed in a virtually uninterrupted way. It's a marvelous thing. But then, beginning somewhere in the mid-80s, that level gap, remember by level we mean your 100 minus my 25, and we're both at the median in our respective races, that that gap started to expand. And indeed, it has now expanded to the point where in 2015, it was as large as the level gap was in 1950. That to us is an astounding result, something we did not expect, something we check, kick the tires on, does it again like that. It's a fact. The median earnings gap after dramatic closing has re-emerged, has re-widened to reach levels not seen since the end of World War II. Now, remember this thing I said about how the picture is different based on who you compare. If you look at African-Americans higher up with the distribution, you do the comparison to 75th percentile. This pattern of a closing gap followed by some reversion is evident there. If you look at the 90th, it's evident there, closing and then rewidening. But the higher up the distribution you go, the more modest is the rewidening. That's result number one. Result number two is if you take a black man at a given percentile point in the black distribution, throw him into the white distribution and ask how far below his counterpart in the white distribution does he fall? So, for example, take the median black man in every year, take his earnings, find those earnings in the white distribution. That level of earnings will, in general, be less than the median white person's earnings. We already said that. How many percentile gaps below it is it? Is it 17 percentile points, 11? And we call that the racial rank gap. At the median, we observe that the black median earner, his position in the white earnings distribution relative to the position of the median white has not changed in 50 years. That to us is astounding. The median black man today occupies the same position in the white earnings distribution that his father's position did and that his grandfather's position did. This to us is a shocking result. It is especially shocking when it is contrasted with what happens elsewhere in the distribution. When one examines blacks, say, at the 90th percentile in the black distribution and does the same thought experiment or the same exercise I just described, one observes that for blacks at the highest end of the black earnings distribution, the positional gain that they have made in the white earnings distribution has been constant across decades, uninterrupted, so that now the 90th percentile black man is only a few percentile points below the 90th percentile white, whereas at the median, there has been no positional closing. The higher up the earnings distribution you go, there has been tremendous closing in position in the far right hill among the highest earning African Americans. This news is mixed news. Because right. on the one hand, you say, whoa, 
This is a glorious thing at the right tail. Fair enough. It is a wonderful thing. What accounts for it? Well, one reason you might say to me, Jay, Corinne, I'm unsurprised by this fact. I didn't know what you might say, but upon reflection, I see what it would be. You might say, well, I know that at the 90th, you mean like kids, people go to colleges like this, right? Yeah, I do mean that. And you say, well, in 1970, roughly, there was a tremendous, this is between 1960 and 1970, there was a tremendous opening of educational opportunity. Schools that had previously shut their door to African Americans, prestigious schools, opened those doors. There was, uh, right around the same time, or in a decade or so thereafter, an opening up of occupations. And so barriers that had long existed against black attorneys or black accountants or black, those barriers were removed. The combination of an opening up an education at prestigious or high quality places, selective places, and uh, educational opportunity leads to this result, you might say, of black men at the top making positional advance in the white distribution. That, you'd be right to say that. But notice it makes the lack of progress at the middle even more surprising. Because even though, you know, Chicago or Princeton has way more black students than they did in 1960, the other thing that happened in the 1960s and early 1970s is that community colleges in America, which didn't exist in 1950, exist all over the country. There's a massive expansion of education in around these very decades. Right, at all levels. At all levels. And importantly, segregation fell in a decade before that. The effect of those changes, in other words, should have privileged and really benefited black people in the middle of the distribution. Do you see what I mean? And so it's true that there were gains to guys who went to Yale, but what about people, the many, many tens of thousands of African Americans who graduated high school when they theretofore had not done so, or went to a year of community college when that had not been an option in 1960? You would have thought that just as the opening up at the top caused blacks at the tops to converge, that the opening up in the middle should have had the same effect, you say. So when I say to you that two racial groups are getting closer together in terms of their earnings, if you think about it for a second, there are two distinct sets of forces that can affect that. I want you to picture in your mind a kind of accordion with many different cases, okay? And think of the accordion as the American earnings distribution. It can be squeezed in or it can be dramatically expanded. Now, importantly, the squeezing in and the expansion, the squeezing in and the expansion, we call the increase or reduction in generalized earnings inequality. Importantly, when we stretch the accordion out like this, we're stretching out earnings for everybody. All Americans' earnings are stretching. When we squeeze it in, squeeze it in for everybody. Yeah? Generalized earnings inequality. Generalized because it is race neutral. The accordion is just moving everybody in or out. That's one way in which African Americans can advance. That given their position in the accordion, along the accordion's keys, if you squeeze the earnings distribution together, it means that although blacks are in general at the left tail of the distribution, when you squeeze the thing narrowly, you shorten the distance between them and their white counterpart mechanically. 
And in real terms, what would what would cause the squeezing of this accordion? Things that raise the bottom for everybody. The growth of public sector unions or labor unions or labor market institutions like minimum wages that have the effect of raising everybody's wage at the bottom. Or at the other end, things that dramatically curtail the exploding incomes of the right tail. Indeed, we know that there's a period in the U.S. where the labor economists called the Great Compression, where everyone did better, but the earnings distribution did not exhibit the dramatic inequality we see in recent decades. So that's one force, generalized structural change in the economy. A different kind of force is a race-specific force. Imagine the accordion is not moving in and out. It's staying just as it was. But notice African Americans are located at different points on the accordion string. Now imagine that for whatever reason, something takes all the black keys and moves them to the right. That's a race-specific advancing. There is no change in the structure of the economy. Blacks are advancing relative to whites for reasons having to do with, for example, the end of discrimination against blacks going to college. And so when I say that blacks have relatively improved, you might have thought or to say, Colonel, which of the two is it? How much more of the first, the accordion squeezing, is it, or widening, than it is black-specific advancement within the distribution? And the answer differs depending on which blacks you mean. You remember I say at the median, the 50th percentile black compared to the 50th percentile white, that there was convergence up until 1980 or so, and then rewidening until the modern day, the present day, which has the effect of causing the gap to be exactly the same. All of those changes, both the convergence and the rewidening, are the result of race-neutral changes. In other words, at the median, the relative improvement and worsening of the black condition is all about generalized structural change that affects us all. By contrast, indeed by striking contrast, for blacks of the 90th, a huge portion of their gains over recent years has been the product of race-specific advancement. This is a thing like the opening up of colleges, the, the end of discrimination in occupations, etc., so it's not only that the experiences of African Americans at the top versus the middle and bottom of their distribution, it's not merely that those experiences have been different. Their source has differed dramatically as well. When American inequality has gotten bad over the last 75 years, it has hurt blacks in the middle. By contrast, their cousins in the right tail of the distribution, a 90th percentile black, they have made gains even in the face of inequality widening. Even as inequality has got worse, the 90th percentile black guy has still made gains, suggesting that the race-specific gains, the opening up of education, the end of discrimination, affirmative action, has mattered hugely for very high-earning African Americans and has not mattered at all, our results show, for blacks in the middle of the distribution. We think that's a shocking result. That's very jarring. To me, one of the clear takeaway seems to be, despite all the gains you just mentioned, a huge portion of working class black America has been unable to escape its, its legacy, right? Is it, that's essentially what this comes down to in a lot of ways. So there is a sense in which you could say, pessimistically perhaps, that we have been, we tend to be concerned about the median and the middle. 
And so we say we've, we've done these various things as a country to improve the economic condition of African Americans. And they have had a race-specific character, by which I mean uh, an anti-discrimination policy against African Americans or affirmative action policies or an end of segregation following Brown v. Board or other things I might mention have as their explicit goal the removal of barriers against blacks. And so what I just said to you is that the effect of all of those legislative and policy initiatives on the condition of the black man in the middle has been roughly zero. Yeah, That's a very pessimistic way to read it, but it's a fact. Yeah. On the other hand, much more optimistically, one might say that, look, the other thing that Kerwin and Pat are saying is that when inequality in America is tamped down, when there are race-neutral forces that raise the bottom or that stop the top from running away from the rest of the country, blacks make gains. Because remember, I did say that the racial level gap closed between 1940 and 1980 or so. And it closed because during that 40-year interval, inequality in the United States was kept to a very modest... Indeed, labor economists call that period the Great Compression that the bottom was doing relatively fine and the top was not running away. And in that period, African-Americans did well. And so much more optimistically, one might say, that tamping down inequality overall has this other effect of causing racial gains in for blacks in the middle. That's all I would say. But to return to the pessimistic side, yes. the <laughs> another compression does not appear to be happening. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. So then you say, and you press me to say, I'm going to say what you, you didn't actually say it this way, but you could have, you could have said, okay, let me stick with the pessimistic thing. I'm still puzzled, you might say. How, how come these race-specific gains in education helped blacks at the top? Why didn't they help blacks in the middle, Kerwin? Here's one way to think about it. So the blacks in the middle and the bottom have been caught by a particularly unhelpful set of forces. Because while it is true, that their education has gone up every year. And while it's true that the gap between their schooling and white schooling has not expanded dramatically, it turns out that the labor market now prices the gap differently. And so let's just take two periods. Black guy in 1940 was a high school dropout. He's not a high school dropout today, Jay. Today he's a high school graduate or he went to one year community college. His white counterpart in 1940, high school graduate. Today, he has three years of college, or is indeed a college graduate. It turns out that the difference between being a high school dropout and a high school graduate in 1940 might have led to an X percent wage or earnings difference. Fast forward 60 years, the difference between three years of college and being a high school graduate is massive. And so, whereas blacks have been increasing their education and whites have been increasing theirs, the price of the difference in education has been going up. And so the market has been hurting blacks more, in a way, for the educational gaps that persist. We call this increased pricing of education a rising return to skill. That, in effect, education as a determinant of your earnings has been getting more and more important. A thought experiment for you, imagine in the early period that education didn't matter at all. This is not true, but work with me. 
fast forward a few years. Education matters a whole lot. A whole lot. Just because of the way the, the economy now is structured. Let's say that blacks have closed the gap a little bit in education. The earnings gap between them and whites might have risen. This is what we have. That right at the time blacks are improving education, but not yet caught up. But not yet caught up. The market is rewarding education more and more highly. So the gaps that remain leave blacks at an ever larger disadvantage. So one thing, one striking feature of the work is to recognize that we have documented, forget about whites for a second, we have documented an astounding increase in within-race inequality among African-Americans. The experience of African-Americans of the 90s, the difference between their experience and the experience of their cousins, their brothers, at the 50th and 30th percentile, is astounding. We don't believe that's gotten a lot of attention, that to speak of the African-American experience as we are wont to do as a policy community, you're reflecting the truth of neither group because <laughs> they could not be more different as our work document. That's point one. Point two is to say that this point when I talked about the optimism-pessimism thing, that to the extent one is concerned about the median, that policies that have the effect of improving the bottom overall, overall, will sweep African-Americans up disproportionately into those gains. Policies that restrict, for example, rising incarceration will disproportionately benefit African-Americans. Any policy that reduces the penalty one receives for having been incarcerated will disproportionately benefit African-Americans. As a labor economist, I see the downsides of wage minima, minimum wages, but to the extent that things like minimum wages or unionization or whatever bring up the bottom in terms of earnings, those gains too will accrue disproportionately to African-Americans. This is a positive side. And it says that since we observe that it is the rising returns to skill that has caused the black advancement at the median to not lead to an eradication of racial differences, we must redouble our efforts to get rid of such education gaps as remain. Remember I said at the median, a white person is a college grad and a black person is a high school. If we got rid of those, even the median, we would observe much more convergence than we have and the depressing fact with which we began about earnings differences having returned to 1970, 1950 level would, in my view, not be true. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Radio Harris, you can subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Just search for Radio Harris. Today's episode was produced by me, Jake J. Smith. <laughs>